Welcome to this week's episode of Opacity, everybody. I'm your co-host, Craig Phillips. I wanted to give a little bit of an intro to this week's episode. You know, we started this podcast to really get into and dig into topics around design careers and this idea of sort of showing a little bit more, having really honest conversations about the things we think about as we think about careers. You know, every episode's a little bit different. Sometimes it's me and Tom talking together about a thing that we're thinking about or bringing another person into that conversation to explore the topic a little bit more. Uh, and sometimes it's bringing somebody in to, to sort of interview them and just hear from them and hear kind of their insight and their wisdom uh, around the topic of design careers. And I think this episode is a perfect example of, of what that can be. So this week's episode is with Kim Lennox. Kim is the VP of Product Design at Zendesk. So we had the chance, the lucky chance to, to chat with Kim while she was in town in Dublin, uh, visiting the local office here. Kind of have an open chat about, about design careers and, and how she's built her career over time through a number of companies, eventually at LinkedIn, then at VP of Product Design at Zendesk. So really fascinating path. Um, and she really shares a lot about that from, from the very early days uh, and up until where she's at now. So really interesting stuff. I think a lot to take away from it for people at any any sort of stage or point in their path. Um, so we're really excited to put this one out. Hope to hear back from the listeners, to you know, to hear from you all about how you found it, uh, things you learned in it. Um, and please, you know, encourage everybody to share the episode. Uh, obviously, subscribe to Opacity if you're not already subscribed. Um, but to pass it along and share it with anyone you know who might enjoy it and might get something out of it. Uh, we've got a bunch of episodes that we've been putting out over the past few months. Um, but, you know, we're still starting out and really appreciate any feedback that we get. So thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy it. Here is the episode with Kim Lennox uh, on Opacity. Welcome, everybody, to Opacity, uh, a new podcast about working in design. Uh, we're really excited about this episode. We have a special, special guest in town today visiting Dublin for a few days. Her name is Kim Lennox and she is the VP of Product Design at Zendesk. Uh, Kim, we're very happy to have you here. Very excited to have this chat. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I I appreciated how you and I connected, which was through one of the leadership Slack channels. And I just mentioned that I was going to be in Dublin and then Craig found me. And yeah. so that was... Very eager opportunist. Uh, as soon as I saw you were coming to Dublin, it's like... And, hey. and that's, I think, part of... Um, part of being just in the design community of reaching out and I think is really important. Um, Kim, we have been digging into some of your content that you've created, some articles that you've written, some talks that you've given. There's obviously a focus on design leadership, but also just kind of career guidance. Like I get, I've gotten a lot out of it, just the few things that I've read, thinking about my design career and like, where is that going? And how do you think about that? Curious, you know, as you've progressed through your career, there seems to be an intentionality there that you've brought to it, that you sort of designed your design career. Was that always the case or was there sort of a point in your career that it became designed? There, there have been some very specific defining moments that made me recognize that I had to be intentional. So um, the first one I think was when I was seeing a lot of, I graduated with a state university degree and I was seeing a lot of people that were getting jobs that had all the pedigree schools. And so what I realized is that I needed to come up with my own version of that. And so I started really focusing on the places that I would go to work needed to be well-known companies. And so I went from a variety of startups to then going to, I think it was probably Leapfrog, 
which is a children's software company uh, and hardware company, and then Samsung, and then Adaptive Path. And you can see name brand, name brand, name brand, name brand. And that came from, that was very intentional, but it came from a moment when I was struggling in, early in my career and my state university degree wasn't getting me anywhere. And so I translated pedigree into, you know, job pedigree as opposed to university pedigree. And that's suited me well. It's open doors. Uh, the job at LeapFrog gave me the opportunity to talk to a recruiter who got me the job at Samsung. And so the doors open when you're at these places, just like the doors open when you're at these high-powered universities as well. Did you notice any difference? Because this is something that I know I think about, I'm sure a lot of designers think about is, you know, being at a big brand obviously opens those doors, but also being at like a small brand, maybe even unknown brand, like it maybe won't open those doors, but maybe it gives you a different type of experience mm -hmm. being at a tiny little company that's really scrappy and trying to do something maybe yes. bigger than their britches. Uh, I wonder like from your experience working maybe for a few smaller things, working on your own, I think for a bit, you were uh, independent for a while, right? Um, when you moved into the big brands and like obviously that had an impact on your career but did the experience also in the smaller the smaller groups also kind of shape who you are yeah absolutely and and the startups like the first job that i got was at a children's software company and i learned so much in those first 18 months and you know the that accelerated dot com boom was very real um there were a lot of inflated titles but we were doing everything. You know, I was, I was coding, I was creating graphics, I was doing animations, I was signing deals with our business partners. There was all kinds of different things that were going on and I wore many hats. And so then when I went to the next thing, I had a variety of options because I had done so much. So those smaller companies I think are really important. And for somebody getting into their first job, they don't have to go to these high, big brands. Just get a job, just get a job doing design. It doesn't matter what kind of design it is. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, building things that you might not feel is, you know, your mission. It's a stepping stone to something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's also what I would look at is that like the leapfrog job for me was I took a huge pay cut because it was a dot-com bust and there was no health insurance, no vacation time, none of that. But I did that because of the type of work and the things that I was going to learn was going to advance my career. I knew that that was a big stepping stone. It wasn't, I wasn't going to stay there for very long. There was no reason to because they weren't going to pay me well, but it got me that next opportunity. And so when you want to get out of school and you're looking for a job, get a job doing design. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of folks that I coach and mentor expect to have a certain you know, level of title or level of responsibility by a certain number of years. And you just got to throw all of that out the window and just look at what am I learning now? Like, where do I kind of want to head? Mm -hmm. Have that direction in general. And then what are the steps to get there? And I think that makes a big difference instead of saying, I'm going to be X by Y. Mm -hmm. that, that just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Curious those, those steps, because I think at least I'm being very selfish here, 
asking for my personal questions here, uh, like figuring out those steps, because I feel like especially with design being an industry and like whether you're a UX designer or a product designer, whatever kind of area within digital design that you're living in, it seems like the path is also changing, right? It's still maybe taking shape. It's still being redefined. It's still sort of being negotiated. So sometimes it feels like that that path, like it's almost like you're trotting it yourself. You're sort of, it's sort of like a- Trailblazing. Trailblazing, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, so it's sort of like looking for kind of people who've done it well, people you can look to to say, yeah, they're kind of where I want to be and I'm going to sort of look at what they've done. Um, is that the best way? Is there- like, is there a value in just sort of shaping yourself and like saying, this is what I'm going to do and it's like, forget everybody else? Yeah, absolutely. I, for, for myself, I, um, I think about, I had another pivotal moment early in my career that the CD-ROM industry, which is what I got into, um, bottomed out in San Francisco. We just, we had kind of a mini recession. Um, and the, luckily, the internet came about at the same time, so most people just shifted to doing web work. Um, but what I saw in that was really looking at technology and innovation and what can be commoditized, what can be outsourced. And I looked at HTML back in 95, and I just thought, and this was you know, probably 1.0, and I just thought it's a little too simple. I was doing lingo, director-based lingo, which is like kind of a pre-JavaScript. And it was a little more sophisticated than HTML. And when I looked at HTML, I just thought, this is going to become commoditized. I'm, I'm not going to make more than X number of dollars annually in a few years from this job. It's going to become too easy to do. And you might not even need a college degree to do it. I didn't imagine that there would be software that could actually create websites. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that creative, but I knew that it wasn't the right thing. And so I intentionally avoided the internet, which sounds strange because I was in the dot-com boom, but I was in the periphery. So I started doing software embedded on hardware. That felt innovative, that right. felt unique, that felt like, you're not going to be able to outsource that mm -hmm. for a little while. And so I ended up my whole career up until 2014, I was doing software embedded on hardware. And that was that bleeding edge. There's nobody else doing it. Kind of find your own way. I remember working at Samsung, trying to figure out how to do interfaces for refrigerators and ranges and or some of the other things, te television interfaces, you couldn't pull a book off a shelf to do that. And so I, I did use um, About Face 2.0, and I did use the, um, what was it, the Yahoo Pattern Library way back in the day, 2004. Um, but those were my sources of um, some sort of pattern, some sort of how do I do this? What are the what are the best practices? Um, you mentioned two thousand and fourteen being a turning point. Yeah. And I really like that your um, article on stepping stones. And you, yeah. you mentioned some of the stuff here. Uh, one of the things I really liked about the article is you, you open it up with your but my two thousand and fourteen job expectations. Yeah. And you had a really I was I was reading through this list and I was just like nodding, thinking like these are all great points. And I think these are things that people 
they kind of think in their head, but they don't externalize. And seeing them written down on the list like this makes a lot of sense. Um, I might read out a couple of them, sure. uh, if that's okay. So like a product that improves people's lives at a large scale, uh, bottoms up culture. So innovation comes from everyone. That's mm -hmm. a great thing. Um, diversity and inclusion are valued, including a broad range of ages and backgrounds, not just gen gender and ethnicity, and a healthy workplace, respect for employees, no jerks. <laughs> that's a great universal law, actually. But it, it just when I read through this, it's kind of like, this sounds like someone who clearly knows what they're doing. They can envisage that job, even though they might not know exactly which company it is just yet. What I ended up doing was I used all of our design practices. I went out and did informational interviews. I talked to people that had jobs that I thought I might want to have. And I asked them about what do they do? What do they, you know, what do they like about their job? What don't they like about their job? I talked to people who would work with those people and find out about, you know, your product partners and things like that. What, what, what's, what are the pros and cons of working with this kind of design style? Um, and so through that research, just like we do with design, understanding our users. I was understanding who my product partners would be. I would understand who I'm interviewing potentially. And so I was able to frame my story based on what I was hearing from my future customers, my, my coworkers. And so from there is when I was able to establish my design principles, which are basically my work principles. Um, so it, I just followed our you know, design process that we do. And that's how I came up with that list. And there's also other things about, you know, certain commute time and a certain, um, certain amount of money. And this is probably the third or fourth time in my career that I've done this exercise. And each time it gets a little bit better. I become a little more aspirational. Diversity and inclusion was not even on my radar probably 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, I was always the first woman hire that wasn't a receptionist always. And then I would always leave that company with 50-50 diversity for the design staff or, you know, whatever team I could influence. And now I intentionally am in a leadership role because now I can act, now I have power. I can actually influence who we hire and I can make an impact on diversity and inclusion. It's really interesting to hear that. I mean, applying UX processes to other things and like I think about my struggle in trying to design my career and the time I spend sitting in isolation uh, trying to think about what that should be and how that's not an effective way to do it just like it's not an effective way to do design sitting in isolation uh, not talking to anybody um, so it's always a good reminder to to apply the things that we the things that we bring to our practice uh, into the other things yeah, and, and during that process, I if any I diagrammed, and you know, I had it all on my. I had uh, a large amount of windows in my office, and so I just had them up on the windows, and and it, it took you know a good couple months. In in twenty fourteen, I mentioned that I, in the article that I um, took some time off, and so I gave myself that time. Aid into savings, yes, like there's nobody's business, but it was totally worth it. Mm -hmm. And actually for, for those folks listening that are early in their career, save your money. There's so much power that you have when you can walk into the office and say, I quit. I don't like this work environment. I don't like this situation. I'm going to go find something better. And you can't do that if you don't have a savings account mm -hmm. to back you up. 
And so when I took that time off, I could, I could afford to take that time off. So save your money, just save your money. You don't need that cool jacket or that $400 bottle of wine. Save your money. <laughs> this may be a tiny tangent, but uh, just because you mentioned kind of leaving a job, uh, I, w I wonder if a lot of people, I mean, I, I think a lot of people do think about like, is, should I leave this job? Is this job going, is it doing more harm than good for me in my career? I wonder if you have any kind of advice for people thinking about that. Like, because yeah. like part of it could be, you know, maybe we're as a, maybe as a generation, younger designers are too quick or younger people are too quick to say, this is not working for me. I'm not getting what I want after six months. I'm out of here. Um, or is it better to stick through and kind of like wonder, I think a lot about what are the signs that it is time to go mm -hmm. versus, versus to stick with it, invest in it, and kind of push through challenges to get to another side, which hopefully will be brighter. But I think it's a hard space to, to think about. I think it starts with interviewing at the right place and knowing what you want. And sometimes when you're new to a career, you don't know what you want. And so if you can, again, intentionally go in with, I'm going to learn. I don't know what I'm going to learn, but I'm going to learn. And then when you get there and you learn that that style, I don't want to do. And the way that person is acting, I'm not going to behave that way. And you're learning. You're still learning, even though it might be a not an ideal work environment, you're learning. Rather than closing yourself off to it as a learning opportunity and seeing it as poor me, poor me, poor me, but seeing it as I'm learning something here. This isn't ideal, but I'm learning something. And then if you can get yourself further on your portfolio and have something that you can look back to and point to and tell a good story. So yeah, I was only there for 18 months, but here's what I accomplished. But you have to have something that you accomplished. As a hiring manager, if I see nine months, 10 months, 18 months, 16 months, and I just think, you know, they're, they're not committed. They don't know what they want. And so if, if I see people who might even have four or five years of experience, which should be a good track record, but if they've been at four or five places, I'm less likely to hire them because they haven't seen it through anything. They haven't, they haven't, you hit a hard point, you've got to break through that hard point. 25 years in the industry, there has been a lot of hard points, but I've had to push through. You can't just give up. So going to your question about like, then how do you decide to quit? I think it's a matter of looking back and saying, have I accomplished what I wanted to hear? Have I learned what I want to hear? Can I just go ask my manager for a different role within the company? Can I pivot my role from, I was doing product design, but I kind of liked that research when I did that project with that researcher. Maybe I go work over there for a year. Or I didn't know I was such a great writer. I'm going to actually go talk to the content strategy folks. Or maybe we don't even have a content strategy team. I'm going to just start doing UX writing because I see the need. That's to me is so much better than just saying, I'm going to go somewhere else. Like stay, stay within your team and find, find your niche. You, you've talked in, in, I think one of the articles about pace um, and sort of pacing yourself mm -hmm. throughout your path. And I wonder if that's a bit related in terms of uh, people myself very much included wanting things to come faster than than they're coming yeah. and say like, well i've been here this long i should have 
then here because I'm not there, let me look for something else. Um, like I wonder, yeah, how do you sort of advise people working under you or, or others that you speak to about like pacing yourself and having a longer term view? Like, how do you, how do you teach a generation to be a little more patient? <laughs> yeah, I, I have nine-year-old twins. I'm working on that one with them too. <laughs> I, I think that patience um, with your career is hard right now because of social media. We see all the perfect world of our peers and we see the title changes, you know, hit our notifications of our friends getting these new titles and new this and new that. And, and everything looks perfect in social media. And we all know that that's not true. It can't be true. It's one side of things. And so I think just recognizing that we don't have to compare ourselves to our peers. We should just be comparing ourselves to ourselves. So if I wanted to set out and do something and I'm working towards that goal, that's good enough. If that goal was too extreme, then maybe I need to reevaluate it. When you set your goals, you shouldn't be setting it based on title. It's more about what you want to accomplish. It's more about the impact that you want to have. And I, I have a lot of amazing, talented people on my team and they don't care about their titles. They care about their impact. And we're, you know, we're talking about um, my global team. How do you level set from a senior designer in Singapore and a senior designer in San Francisco and a senior designer in Dublin? How do you see that when you're sitting on an airplane going to one of those places? It's hard to do. And so my design managers are really looking at how do we level set and set those expectations. And really, when somebody wants to get promoted to that next level, it's like, what is the impact that you're having on the team? Are you actually making a suggestion that your product partner is then accepting and adding it to the roadmap? And then your engineers are actually building it. And then your customers are loving it. It doesn't care what title you have. You, you're actually making an impact. That's more important. And that's when you actually get that recognition and you get the title, but you, you need to show that impact, not just I've done these five things and now I should get my title. Uh, I really enjoyed the talk you did for the Design Leaders Conference. And you mentioned a lot of points around like how you deal with things personally and, and your outlook. Um, I think you call it, call yourself ruthlessly optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, is that, have you always been that way? Mm -hmm. Or is that, is that a, a new philosophy? Yeah, it definitely, well, newish. Um, it, it all started actually back when I was at LinkedIn, I was promoted to director and I kind of had a freak out moment. And I think it was partly because LinkedIn is such a known brand and uh, director is not a light title. Um, they, it's a very important role. And I didn't think I was worthy. It wasn't so much, um, what's that phrase that everyone uses about um, imposter syndrome? It wasn't about imposter syndrome. I knew I could do the job. I was doing the job. I earned that title. But for me, there was this fear of success that I wasn't supposed to be as successful as, or more successful than my parents. And so I graduated um, college 
first kid to graduate college um, of my family. Um, my, my dad's a high school dropout. And so being able to be a college graduate was a big milestone. But then, you know, being successful, buying my own home, doing all of these things, I kept stretching my success. And then this title just hit me hard. And when I had this freak out moment, I shared it with my VP of design and he was able to relate to it because um, he had um, humble beginnings as well. And he got me connected with um, an executive coach. And through that executive coach, it was actually a husband wife team. We met weekly and I figured out that I had been living in survival mode my entire life. And, you know, you might think like, how does that relate back to this? I was afraid of success. I was afraid of thriving because I had grown up constantly surviving, constantly just paycheck to paycheck. Are we going to, you know, be able to afford this? Are we going to be able to just very meager means? And then I had this abundance that I had created and that freaked me out. And so I was able to shift my mind from being in constant survival mode to thinking about what would it be like to not be afraid, to not fear, mm -hmm. not fear the interaction with a coworker that they are going to undermine my job in some way. This is where the battle armor part of the story comes in. I was showing up previously to my jobs with battle armor. And I had this one VP of engineering I met with at LinkedIn, and he was just describing, you know, we were just having a one-on-one. -on -one. He was just describing something to me. And my approach to him, he said, Kim, I don't know where this is coming from, but you sound really defensive. You have no reason to be defensive. And that clicked. Mm -hmm. I, my battle armor's there. My battle armor is in this room and it doesn't need to be there. This is a great guy. Mm -hmm. He's super smart, intelligent engineering partner who wants to partner with his head of design and he can't because she's bringing this battle armor in. And it was those moments that I just, every email, every interaction, I would have to remind myself, shed that battle armor. There was one email that I got from HR, Human Resources, and they um, typically, in previous companies, they're usually taking something away from you. <laughs> and they're usually making the managers have to spin something positive about it. And so my battle armor was there. I got defensive, I, my chest tightened, I held my breath and I just thought, Oh, these, I got so angry. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even read the email yet. Expecting the worst. Yeah. Expecting the worst. And I read it and they were actually, this particular email was telling us that they were giving all North Americans the, or maybe it was all U.S. Um, uh, employees, the entire week of July 4th, which is our national holiday. Mm -hmm. Take that whole week off. Just they're shutting down the office for a week. Yeah. It's the exact opposite of what I, the energy and the intention yeah. that I'd brought, total opposite. Well, 
And so through this coaching, um, which frankly was therapy, mm -hmm. I figured out how to unpack all of that. And that's what I bring to the office now is I think about thriving, not about surviving. And that's when, when that happened for me at LinkedIn, my coworkers started to see things differently. They started to, um, I kind of attract, there was like this ripple effect, right? That there was more positivity around me because I was creating this positive mm -hmm. influence. And that's where in one of my reviews, somebody referred to me as ruthlessly optimistic. And that now that's why it's now on my profile because I'm I'm owning that. I, I love that because I am pretty darn ruthless. <laughs> but I'm also incredibly optimistic. It's I think it's really important that, especially in what we do, we have so many gnarly challenges that we have to handle. And there's so many unknowns. But if you approach it as in a survival headspace, fight or flight, it's going to go nowhere. But if you bring an optimistic approach to it, you're going to solve it. You'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how much of, I feel like how much of our energy can be sucked into that pessimism and just kind of yes. approaching things in that way. Like I can think of 20 stories of, of the same kind of battle armor thing where you, you're ready to, you're ready for a battle at all times. Anytime this presentation is going on, I'm ready to fight for this. And, and part of it's sort of like, you think it's like a just war, like you think you're fighting for the user, you're fighting for good design or something, but in the end, you're, you're just kind of hurting yourself and probably hurting the project uh, and hurting the product and hurting everything in the end. So and hurting the dynamic, like just the human dynamic in the office. So yeah, that, that optimism, that, that attitude, bringing that to the table is just so important. Good reminder. One of the things that I pulled out of something you said before was made me think about mentorship and, and sort of a lot of us, whether you're on your first day in your first first design job or even before your first design job and you're a student or whatever. Uh, and then as you progress through, we talk about mentorship a lot and the value of having a mentor. I wonder how much, you know, we talk about the value, but I wonder how much people actually have mentors. Like, can, can you actually point to somebody who is this is a mentor, um, a consistent mentor or short-term mentor, whatever. And then there's also the, the coaching kind of executive coaches, leaders have coaches to help them think about their problems and, and work through them. Uh, I wonder, is there a difference between the coach and the mentor uh, and sort of your experience either with mentors or with coaches and the value they've had or not had? When you seek out a mentor, it's about finding somebody that can be your sounding board and can be kind of a trusted um, partner in helping shape your career and helping guide and, and you know, make some help you with some tough decisions, perhaps. Um, a coach is somebody who's much more strategic in you bringing a problem that they need to help you solve. And so there's things like um, building st a stakeholder map um, of you know, who you're working with and um, the types of relationships you need to have with each stakeholder. Um, you know, is it a push relationship? Is it a pull relationship? What types of preparation do you need to have when you're meeting with that VP or when you're meeting with that peer, that's more of a coach. And they can coach you also in your communication style and um, your physical appearance and all of those sorts of things to help you 
you know, have executive presence and um, be able to show up in a room and not necessarily get noticed, but be the one that's in charge. There's, you know, the, the idea of owning the room, the coaches can help with that. For myself personally, I, when I started looking for this next role as a VP, one of my mentors suggested that I create a board of, a personal board of directors, which I had never really heard about, but you can look it up. There, it's a thing. And he offered to be one of my personal board of directors. And he said, but I can't do it all myself. And I said, well, what is this? And he said, this is a group of people that you can text or call or email. And at any moment, they will give you advice, in the moment advice. And you, you come to them as, um, you know, I've got this situation and I don't know what to do. You know, say as a design leader, you have, um, maybe you're doing a performance management situation with somebody who's challenged in their work. And how do you unpack that? How do you build yourself back up from that moment? And you, when you're in leadership roles, you don't have a group of people. I can't just like tell my coworkers, hey, let's go down to the bar and hang out because I'm their boss or sometimes I'm their boss's boss. Mm -hmm. And so it gets a little awkward if, you know, I'm letting loose, drinking myself, you know, in my sorrow in front of my staff, yeah. you know, so it is lonely at the top, so to speak. And so you have to be able to have those advisors. And so I have a personal board of directors. I've got a chief product officer, um, a VP of engineering and a, and two design leaders. Um, and I, I meet with some of them. I meet, um, on a quarterly basis for lunch. Some I text regularly, you know, once a month or something. It just depends on what's going on. Uh, sometimes I don't, chat with them for months, um, but they're there. And then I also have a group of trusted female leaders that we've some, in some cases we've known each other for 20 plus years. And we didn't necessarily know each other really well back then, but over the years, our careers have evolved and kind of intertwined in various ways. And we get together. Um, I, I'm very fortunate living in San Francisco. There's a lot of us. And so we get together every quarter. There's about six or seven of us that get together every quarter. And we'll just go to one of their houses for brunch or something. Um, but having that um, is really important. And with the, with the women leaders, I will send them a private message and just say, hey, this cool thing happened, you know, success. And then we all celebrate the success. And they, you know, they're all changing jobs and yeah. career. And so we all celebrate together. Um, so I think that having the board of directors and um, this peer group has been really helpful for, for me because I can't just go hang out with a bunch of my coworkers. I think that's a perfect segue into kind of talking a little bit more about your current context. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff just looking at your role at Zendesk and maybe just to better understand for everyone listening what is that context? Because it's, uh, you know, with the sort of distribution around the global offices and sort of how big the team is and what kind of roles sit there and then just maybe a little explanation of yeah. what that looks like. Yeah. So Zendesk is a 
software company that works on customer support software tools. And we started with uh, three Danish founders who were in San Francisco and they saw that customer support software was really bad. And this was, I think, 2007, perhaps, uh, was when they founded the company. The great thing about the founders is they come from Denmark, which is deeply steeped in a design culture. And so design was at the forefront for this company to make things usable and beautiful. Beautifully simple is what they really cared about from a product perspective. And in the beginning, I think they really achieved that with the single product. And then we acquired a chat software, and then we acquired a voice software, and then we acquired a marketing software. And we, as we slowly acquired all these other companies, we have streamlined and made the products look similar and function in similar ways, but they're all separate products right now. And so now we're, the challenge that I joined for is this product integration. How do we have an omni-channel product solution for voice and chat and support, which is a ticketing software that really supports agents in a really robust way, but also end users who are the customer's customers. How do we do that? That's the design challenge that got me to Zendesk. And the other challenge was a distributed team. I've got eight offices now. We just acquired the most recent company was Base in Krakow and San Francisco. And I'll be visiting them next actually on this trip. And having eight offices with one designer to 10 designers in different locations has been a challenge. Um, one of the things that we do is I try to make sure that everyone works their business hours and we are heavy users of Slack. And so somebody may post a question on Slack and it could take over 24 hours for a reply because of the time zones. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I don't want somebody at three o'clock in the morning responding to my Slack message because I, I sent the message during my business hours. It can wait. And you know, we do have an occasional, um, I do have some team members that have me on WhatsApp and they'll you know, WhatsApp me if, if it's super urgent. But generally people don't work weekends, they don't work late evenings. I think the hardest one um, of all of the time zones is Europe though. Because right as you guys are all heading out the door, heading to the pub, going home to pick up the kids, whatever it might be, the U.S. is coming online. And the, my first visit to the Zendesk office in Dublin back last year, we were all out having dinner. And I just started seeing all the notifications come on. And we were, we were just about to toast. And I just said, you know, I, I really want to acknowledge how hard this is for all of you to not be looking at your phones while San Francisco's coming online. And that's what really made me very viscerally feel the challenge of leaving at six because eight o'clock you're going to between six and 8 PM, you're going to get a lot of work done with San Francisco if you just stuck around, but I don't want them to. You, you mentioned the, um, the Danish founders and the sort of 
the role of design sort of in the lifeblood of the company in a bit. I wonder, was was design, I mean, your role as VP of design, was there always a VP of design? Was design always sort of central to, did it always have a leadership role plus a large team or is that a newer development? Yeah, it's a great question. The founders ended up, I think that it might've been their first brand designer was um, our chief creative officer now. He's been there nine or 10 years. His name is Toka. He's also Danish. And they had worked together at previous companies. Um, and he started working on their brand work. He started working with their product designers and very small, like three or four designers total in the entire company back then. And over time, Toka just continued to expand his role. And now he has a staff of between brand and product design around 100 people in uh, nine offices, um, because we also have a London office for the brand team. And Toka's influence is in product design, brand design, but also employee experience. So when we go uh, lease an office, his staff goes in and does the interior design. And so um, you visited our office. It's beautiful. It's amazing. You can find videos of it and whatnot online. And that's the design team. It's very design-led. Uh, any kind of specific challenges that you're working through right now um, with the team, with, with design, with anything? Um, like, what's front of mind at the moment for you? Uh, I, I mentioned about the product integrations and the distributed offices. And what I noticed when I started traveling around meeting the different teams was that each team functioned very well in its own location. But what I wasn't seeing was product integrations going really well. And so within a few months of arriving, I decided I really needed to get the teams to think about the product experiences, not about their features. They were very feature-driven and roadmap-driven around their own little world. And so what I tried to do was observe when I first arrived. And then when I would meet with a product executive or an engineering executive or with the designers in one-on-one -on -one conversations, I would bring up some challenges that I would see, some product integration challenges. And I'd say, well, you know, is this an agent experience that we're talking about? And then I'd have them, you know, share with me what they were thinking was the agent experience or the end user experience or uh, the admin experience, and I would hear that admin experience is being designed in San Francisco and Melbourne, or the um, agent experience is happening in three different offices. And, and so once I started hearing that, then I started to shift the conversation with our, my product partners, the VPs that were running the teams, and I would say, you know, do you want me, I'm new here, do you want me to fix these things that I'm seeing? And like, yes, absolutely. So I started getting the mandate. And so by August, I arrived in February, and by August we had an annual retreat where we brought all the designers together and we went to Los Angeles and uh, 50 or so people. And I introduced the concept of the experience mindset. I had already identified six designers to start out. 
We had agent experience, mobile experience, admin, end user, onboarding, and one other that I can't remember right now. And identified those designers, introduced them to the entire team as these are your experience leads. If you on your standalone product are doing something in admin, then you need to work with Vedran. And Vedran is your admin experience lead. And so Vedran then goes through and looks at all of the admin experiences across all of our products. And he looks at all of the labeling, which are different. Mm -hmm. And all of the interactions are different. And all of the behavior, everything is different. And now his job is to bring them all together and come up with a unified approach for our admin experience for small and medium businesses, as well as enterprise. And so that's his job now, in addition to his day job of shipping features and whatnot and, and sticking with his roadmap. And we ended up for onboarding, for example, I found 13 different designers of 35 or 40 that were working on onboarding. You know that means an inconsistent experience for our customers. So now we have one experience lead. So that was how we started out and it's evolving and growing. We are adding more experiences and we're identifying specific designers to take on those roles. And what's great is our product leaders are somewhat aligning towards this. We have one uh, general manager VP who is running the end user experience products out of two different countries, but he is overseeing those. That's how we're making an impact. The other big thing that I noticed when I first arrived was designers were designing around engineering constraints, not always, but often designing around engineering constraints because it was easier for engineering, mm -hmm. but it would create friction for the customer. And so what I, mandated my mantra is design the right thing design the thing right and so now it's really up to each designer to decide whether they're how big that gets if i have to design the right thing and design the thing right i need research i need content strategy i need a team of that's not going to happen mm -hmm. but they can at least start having intention towards designing the right thing and they can start having conversations with their engineers and their product partners and not just designing a particular feature on top of another feature on top of another feature, which creates Frankenstein interfaces. So we're avoiding those Frankenstein interfaces or we're avoiding the three or four page loads when it was, you know, a feature from last quarter and a feature from two quarters, you know, two quarters past that and two years ago and you slam it all together and it's a nightmare redesign it. So that also is a big shift. And so between those of having the experience mindset and designing the right thing and designing the thing right, we're really heading towards a lot better products. We're seeing the designers stepping forward and challenging their engineers. Curious if there's kind of one, like in terms of your entire career, if you could boil it down to kind of a single piece of advice for... <laughs> All designers all across the world in every stage. No. But in, but it's sort of like like is there is there sort of a, a a single thing that you always come back to that this this really opened a door or this really allowed me to create the career 
like create the career I wanted. It's all been building upon itself, pacing myself, stepping stones, not expecting too much. And also working hard. I, I have not sloughed off, you know, that's for sure. I think if you have the, the interest and the ambition, you will build your confidence. It, it will come. But I think that just staying focused on what you believe in or spending time figuring out what you believe in. You got to, again, that's like pacing yourself, right? That's a stepping stone. You don't have to have all the answers. Well, Kim, I think that's a, probably a perfect place to, to wrap up. I think we could probably ask you questions all night. In terms of people connecting with you, is there, is there ways that people can, can find you on social media or elsewhere? Um, is there anything to find out more about Zendesk that, that they should go to, to to learn more? I'm on Twitter. I don't know if it's very interesting, but I am on Twitter. So it's UXKim. That's where you can find me on Twitter. And as far as uh, Zendesk, we do have an Instagram account, which is zendesk.creative. Um, yeah, you can find you can find Zendesk. Uh, we have a, a design.zendesk.com uh, blog posts that are up there as well. Um, definitely worth seeing all of the content, not just me. There's so much going on at Zendesk. And there's uh, we host events in lots of different offices around the globe as well. And yes, we are hiring product design, front-end engineers, product management, content strategy, user research, everything. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Hopefully uh, another time you're in Dublin, maybe you can come back and we can have a round two. Sounds good. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.